Father in heaven, we just thank you so much that you love us so much individually and that you have a plan for healing us from anything that's bothering us. We pray that you will continue that process in our lives as we talk now about how to heal from our own mistakes as well as the mistakes of others. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last session we talked about how the sins of others can reject, result in sins of our own. We have sinful responses to other people's sins against us. So this is talking about healing from our own sinful mistakes. I don't mean to say that, well, any mistake that you make is just a result of somebody else sinning against you. you know. None of us can excuse our own sinful mistakes, especially as we get older and older and we're more and more accountable for the responses that we choose to have, the sinful choices that we make. But I want to talk about what I hear so much in counseling. How can I forgive myself? You know, I talked to a girl not long ago who had gotten addicted to masturbation. I've actually dealt with quite a few of those. Um, and it's amazing to me how masturbation can often mimic sexual abuse. You know, people who have gotten compulsively addicted to masturbation may actually start feeling that they are worthless. They've, they feel, you know, a sexual abuse victim, victim often feels, I am not worth as much as other people. No one could really love me if they knew this. They feel innately bad or dirty or worthless or like if somebody wants to abuse them, well, I deserve it anyway. That's the way I am. I'm that kind of person. And this is something that I often see mirrored in people who are addicted to pornography or masturbation, that they also begin feeling the same way. I am just innately bad or dirty, and there's nothing I can do about this. This girl had gotten so addicted to this that when men started being interested in her sexually, she felt that she was incapable of saying no. She was already that kind of girl. She was a bad girl. And this had become such an innate problem for her that she even became sexually active. And even though it didn't happen very much, she, she got an STD as a result. And she was just devastated. She came to me saying, here I am, a girl who was going to save myself for marriage. Everything was going to be so wonderful. I'm this healthy, happy, growing Christian. But I had this problem. And now I have a permanent STD as a result. How can I forgive myself? for wrecking my own life so much. How can I forgive myself? You know, once again, I want to go back to what is it that is the sin of our age? So often it's self-reliance. How can we forgive ourselves? Are we really the ones who can wash away our own sins? This is another manifestation of self-esteem. Forgiving myself is not the solution. We don't have the power to wash away our own sins, do we? The solution is found in accepting the sacrifice of Christ, believing in his power to cleanse us from any and every sin. Sometimes we feel that we must do something. You know, our culture says, fix it. You're capable. Take control of your life. If you need to be forgiven, forgive yourself. There's no one else to forgive. Forgive yourself. Is that going to solve anything? We must meditate on the love of God as revealed through the creative and redemptive power of Christ. This is the way that we can internalize the love that God has for us. Remember, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
as we recognize, wow, God loves me just the way I am, then we stop having this craving for somehow fixing our own guilt. Like the person who kneels down at the, you know, at the side of their bed and prays, God, I'm so sorry for how I've messed up. And they pray for 10 minutes, they stand up, they still feel guilty. And they get down on their knees again, God, I've gotta, I've gotta confess some more because I still feel guilty. This is not the solution. Trying, working, and then I see those same people come out of those, you know, those guilt-laden situations saying, well, I'm just gonna become super healthy. So they exercise. They eat very carefully. They get involved in evangelism because there's this overwhelming sense of I'm not good enough yet. Somehow I've got to make myself good enough that God can accept me. And they'd never say that if I said to them, are you trying to make yourself good enough for God to accept you? Oh, no, no, I just owe it to him, you know. He loves me so much, I need to love him back. But down inside, the thing that drives them to their ministry, that drives them to doing what's right, is a feeling that if I can just get it right, I can just be good enough, then God can accept me. Then maybe I'll atone for my own sins, isn't it really? We want to fix it. We want to atone for our own sins. Instead of accepting the blood of Christ, we say, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus died for me. I know his blood covers my sins, but I need to do something myself. Somehow Jesus' blood is just not enough. You know, heathen religions teach that we can save ourselves. But Christianity tells us that we, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. No one can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. Can you do that for yourself? No. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may he also do good that are accustomed to do evil. This is one more manifestation of self-esteem, self-reliance, thinking that I can actually fix how God sees me. I can actually become who I need to be without God. But God reads our hearts, and this is the great thing. God also cures our hearts. If I take a white shirt and I dunk it in a filthy mud puddle and pull it back out, it's not going to be white anymore. And I'm not going to go, oh, wow, guess I didn't get it clean enough that time. I'll do it again. Keep on trying, because eventually I'm just going to happen to hit the right spot where the mud is all going to be gone and all of the water will be right there and the shirt will come out white again, right? It just doesn't happen that way. Forgiving ourselves is an illusion where the devil tries to say, you know what, you can fix it on your own. God wants to do something much better. Rather than making us atone for our own sins, he wants us to let him wash us in his blood. And then we can go, wow, that sin was so amazing. You wouldn't believe how great the feeling was when that huge burden came off my back. Wow, Lord, I love you. But instead, we keep saying, Lord, heal me. Lord, heal me. You're the great physician. Why won't you do something to fix this? And he's saying, I'm trying to heal you, but you will not let go of my hands. He's trying to reach into us, bring out that sin, that brokenness, Get rid of it. Heal that infection from the inside out so that we're truly whole and free and built on him. But instead, so often, we try to fall back on ourselves. Self-reliance, the sin of the age. God can use even sin for his glory. Look at the plan of redemption if you want the proof of that. 
not just in spite of sin, but actually because of sin. We will be closer to God than we could have ever been without it. Sinful actions reveal sinful hearts. If you didn't commit any sins that made you feel sinful, you might never need a savior, right? Like the Pharisees. They looked great on the outside. They felt great about themselves. Their self-esteem was off the charts. And that's why they could crucify the Son of God, because they didn't need his blood. They didn't need his grace. They were doing just great on their own. When we glimpse the ugliness of our hearts, it can be very discouraging. It can cause us to just go to despair. And therefore, we shrink away, say, oh, I'm not all that bad. We go do something good for other people. Then I'll feel better about myself. And sure enough, we'll feel better about ourselves. But we're touched by someone else's pain, often because we want to be God for them. This is, this is one of those classic things I see often when people, people who are unwilling to give their hearts completely to Christ try to be God for someone else. How many times I've counseled people who they won't break off a relationship because they've got to be for this person what no one was for them growing up. Well, if you want to be for that person what no one was for you growing up, you may spend all of your life trying but only God can be what you needed when you were growing up. Only God can fill that place. And if you spend your life consumed with trying to be God for somebody else, you're going to suffer a lot of disappointment and frustration. Number one, because nobody's ever going to appreciate you enough to make you feel good enough about yourself. But also it's just an unending, frustrating cycle, trying to be good enough. And then when somebody disappoints you, you lash out in anger. Now you just feel terrible. How could I do that to them? Now I'll make it all up to them. I'll bring them flowers. I'll be, I'll be everything that they ever wanted. You know, you listen to love songs. Oh, man, most love songs just make me sick. Codependent relationship. <laughs> You're the center of my life. I would die without you. You are my everything. You're the reason I keep breathing. Oh, I just, God, stop, stop, stop. You're killing yourselves and each other. <laughs> But when Christ is the center of our lives, then he gives us hope. Despair at our sinfulness forces us to look outside of ourselves for hope. Rather than saying, if I can just become good enough, then I'll have washed away my own sins, we see the ugliness within us. We go, wow, how could I have been such a selfish person? When I see myself, you know, I had a friend tell me once long before I got married, I didn't know until I got married how selfish I was. And then I had children and I found out how bad I was. And I thought, whoa, that's not an advertisement for marriage and family, is it? And then I got married and I found out he was right. You know, I thought I was a pretty self-sacrificing person. I could go out and run call porter programs and sleep on floors and go through wind and hail and sleet and snow and boiling hot temperatures and everything. And wow, I just love pouring myself out for the gospel. It was awesome. It was amazing. I remember that feeling when I'd go home at night, you know, everything's dead silent. I've got everybody put to bed. Everything's taken care of. And I'm walking to my sleeping bag and I'm so dead I can hardly move. And I just crash and go, wow feels great. I'm just wrung out for the gospel. And I thought, man, I'm a person who just loves challenge. And then I got married. And then I had children. And I discovered parenting could very well be the most challenging thing in the entire world, but I did not love that challenge. 
because there are only two, two things that you have to do as a parent. Get the house clean and the children obedient, but the house is never fully clean, and the children are never fully obedient. It's the ultimate challenge. I liked conquering challenge. Do you know why I liked conquering challenge? I liked that feeling it gave me. Wow, I'm worth something. Look what I did. Look how powerful I was. All those challenges that came at me today, barking dogs and cars breaking down and police throwing me out of town and wow, we did it. It was awesome, I loved it, but that was because I conquered the challenges. When the challenges are there day after day after day and no one is going, wow, you're amazing, how did you pull that off? You just have to keep grinding away at it. I told my husband, you know, I feel sometimes like every morning I get up in the morning and I wade into this river and I swim upstream as hard as I can all day long. And when I get out of the water at the end of the day, I crawl up onto the sand and collapse. And if I'm lucky, I made it a couple of feet higher upstream than I was at the beginning of the day. The house is still a mess. The children are still struggling to learn to be obedient. It's just not working out. I'm not conquering things. You see, I was building my sense of worth on the fulfillment that I found in succeeding at conquering a challenge instead of building it on the unconditional love of God for me. I was building my sense of worth on what people thought of me or on how I felt about myself instead of on the fact that I can, don't have to accomplish anything, just being here and serving God with all of my heart, doing the little things that nobody praises me for, cleaning the dishwasher out, working more on potty training, teaching my daughter her letters, disciplining for all these little situations, faithfully dealing with these little things that nobody's going to praise me for. This is where true greatness is developed, when nobody's telling you how great you are, and when the challenges are never conquered. If you're climbing a mountain and yet every day the mountain is still there and you never actually get anywhere close to the top, then you find out, am I really climbing this mountain because God has told me to climb this mountain or am I climbing it for the exhilaration of saying, I did it, wow, I'm something. So God helps us sometimes to find out how sinful we are and then forces us at that moment of finding out how bad we are to look outside of ourselves and say, wow, there's hope for someone even like me. When we feel our sinfulness, we feel often for the first time the depths of our need for a savior. That's something God can work with. That's something that will draw us close to him. Here's how we're changed into the image of Christ. When we see how bad we are, we say, Lord, if you can do something with even someone like me, do it by all means, take me. This is the great thing of the gospel. God is never willing to give up on us. Now, I want to talk about root sins and fruit sins. If you have dandelions growing in your yard, do you go out there and you pull all the leaves off and you pull all the flowers off? What's going to happen a week later? You go out there and look at that. They're back again. Now, if I tell my daughter, who's six years old, I want you to take care of all the dandelions in our yard, she may go out there and with great courage and fortitude rip off every dandelion flower and every leaf from every dandelion plant. But then if she goes out the next week and those are still there, you know, bang, they came back again. If she pulls them all off again, it's not going to take long to discourage a six-year-old, I can tell you that. She can't even clean the playroom without getting discouraged. How is she going to clean up all the dandelions in the yard week after week after week? But often we as children 
as children of God, there's nothing we can do to get the roots out. My daughter's not strong enough to go out there and uproot every one of those dandelions. She doesn't have it in her. But if I would go out with her and say, now this is how we get those dandelions out. Now work with me. So I dig the shovel in and I work the root free. And then when I get it to where she can pull it out, then I say, okay, pull now. And she grasps that and yeah, she yanks it out. Wow. Together, we could do it, right? Sometimes God wants to confront the root sins instead of the fruit sins in our lives. It's not going to do harm for her to go out there and pull off all those dandelion flowers every week. In fact, it'll do some good, right? It'll keep them from going to seed. So that instead of having a thousand dandelions next year, we'll still have one, right? But it's not going to solve the problem. Often we as Christians, we go out there every week and we try to pull off the leaves and the flowers from the dandelion plants from the sinful tendencies in our lives. We go, okay, Lord, I'm not going to watch that. I'm going to throw away all this bad music. I'm going to throw away all those fashion magazines that are making me feel so bad about my body, that are making me crave having those clothes that are in style. I'm going to be content, Lord. We may even decide, I'm going to get rid of all the jewelry. I'm going to get rid of all these movies that are making me crave having a boyfriend to love me. And those are good things to do. It's not bad to do those things, but those are fruits of deeper issues. When I talk to people that are, are going through things like that, they're going, man, I really, you know, I need, to, I need to deal with this problem that I have with overeating. Okay, it's not a bad thing to decide you're going to deal with the problem of overeating, but what's driving you to overeat? Is there something deeper? Is there a root? Now, I talked to a friend not long ago who just loved dancing. He would spend hundreds of dollars every week on, I mean, every month on going out dancing, dance lessons, doing all kinds of things. And he said then he started realizing some of the compulsive behaviors that were going on in his life. As he was getting closer to Christ, suddenly things started coming into more balanced perspective in his life. He started going, wow, look at this. I'm going out to eat over and over every meal. I'm going out to eat as an escape from the pain going on in my life. And I, not only do I go out and pay for money for myself to go out to eat, but I go and bring a friend along and pay for them too, just so I can have somebody to be with me. I need something to kill the pain. He said, I started, you know, going and spending time with friends at work, and they would say, wow, you ask questions all the time about us. This is so wonderful. But then when he started taking a deeper look at himself, he realized, you know, I'm doing that because I want them all to like me. And he was going out dancing, spending these hundreds of dollars. He started going, okay, I need to get some control over my finances. So he made a budget for himself. He stopped going out to eat all the time as an escape. He stopped going dancing all the time as an escape. He stopped spending all this time with his friends, trying to kill the pain in his heart. And what do you know? All of a sudden, all these issues started coming up in his mind. He said he literally looked at himself in the mirror and said, who are you? I don't even know myself. I don't know who I am or what I'm doing. And then he started to confront himself biblically. And as he compared his life to the word of God, God started doing the deep work that he had always wanted to do in his heart and life. This is the friend I started talking about at the beginning of last, semester, last um, session, that he was struggling with this depression, with the things that he was dealing with because of his parents, because of his father dying and his mother abusing him, now he felt, wow, what is it that I can 
oh, I, can, I can do to confront this massive pain in my heart and in my life. And as he started pouring his life out to God, God started going into those, those deep wounded areas in his heart and saying, that's what you think I'm like, but I want you to know what I'm really like. Here's what I'm like. I'm the God who wants to be the father you craved growing up when all your friends had fathers and you didn't. I want to be for you what no one has ever been for you. I'm the one who wants to be the mother for you that you always wanted your mother to be. You wanted somebody to accept you just the way you were. You wanted somebody to love you, not to yell at you, not to be angry at you. I'm that father. I'm that mother who has always been waiting there just to be who you wanted me to be. And now, now he found, wow, God was doing something in his life that he couldn't have imagined before. And before long, his friends came to him and said, why are you not asking us questions about ourselves anymore? He thought, well, that's a really good question. Why am I not? Because he no longer craved their approval. He hadn't made the decision to stop asking them questions. He hadn't really been very conscious of why he was doing what he was doing. But suddenly, he no longer had this craving for their approval. He was happy and healthy. He was becoming who God wanted him to be. As he, uh, he told me, he was, he was just starting to realize, wow, you know, one of, one of his friends said, do you want to go out for a walk with us this afternoon? He said, no, I'm, I don't feel like it. And his friends all turned and looked at him, you don't feel like it? This is not you. Are you okay? What are you going to do instead of going out with us? And he said, you know what, I'm going to go home and sit down and read and be by myself. And that's what he did. And he said, it was awesome. I just loved it. I went and read for hours, talked with my brother on the phone, had a deep conversation with God. He was so fulfilling. It was so satisfying. Before, he was doing things that weren't bad. It's not bad to go for a Sabbath afternoon hike. But he was constantly living in escape mode. Let me get out of, out of the pain that's going on in my head. Let me find something else to make me feel good about myself. And it doesn't matter if it's food, sex, shopping, you know, shopaholic or, you know, People call it, what is it, retail therapy? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with shopping. I do it regularly. That's why we eat. But when I'm doing it as therapy for myself, when you're shopping in order to make yourself feel good, there's a problem because it's an anesthetic. It's something to kill the pain. When you're killing the pain instead of dealing with the sin problem, there's something going on, right? And that pain is going to keep coming back in ugly ways. That brain tumor of sin is not going to go away because you take a Tylenol. It's only going to be left to grow and to become more and more massive until it can threaten to crumble your whole life. God wants to help you feel that pain in order to find healing, to let him cut open the deep wounded places in your heart and your life so that he can make you into who he wants you to be. What sins lie at the root of our fruit sins? I can't tell you what, what are the root sins behind your fruit sins. If you sit down with me and, and we talk about it, I may be able to give you some good ideas. But the beautiful thing is God reads your heart. He knows. He wants to sit down with you. He wants you to come to him and say, what is it that's lying at the root of why I feel this need to control people? What is it that's at the root of my compulsive behaviors? You know, many people, they, they have compulsive behaviors. I've got to do this. I don't dare do that. When really all it is is trying to take control of their lives. They want to be able to be in charge. And if they can't be in charge, then they'll find some way to feel like they're in charge. These aren't the solutions to our problems. 
Self-reliance is at the root of many of the sin issues that we find. Sexual addiction, often the, the, the root sin that lies behind the fruit sins is that we're looking for intimacy with someone other than God because God seems too far away. We don't know how to go to God. He's so far away. Let me just find something else. But like an iceberg, we go back again and again. Oh, I've just got to chop out this, this little chunk of ice that's sticking up in my life. And we don't realize there's this huge looming iceberg under the surface. The things that we aren't even conscious of, the motivations, the things that drive us to fruit sins. That doesn't mean we shouldn't stop doing those things. If you're, if you're struggling with a sexual addiction, if you're struggling with shopaholic or foodaholic or anything else-aholic kind of things, I don't mean just go on and rejoice in the Lord and know how much he loves you and eventually that urge to go to porn will go away. No, unfortunately, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And the Bible says, ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. But you know, when we hang on to the hand of Christ, with every ounce of strength that we have in us, when we can't hold on anymore, he'll hold us. He'll cling to our hand. When we say, Lord, I will not let you go except you bless me, he'll say, don't worry. When you can't hold on anymore, I'll hold on to you. I'll pull you through. Why does he make us work? Why does he make us suffer like that? Why did he make Adam work when he came out of the Garden of Eden? Why did he say, now you're going to have to make things grow by the sweat of your brow? Because work and exercise develops strength and character. It's not that God says, if you do everything you can to connect with me, then I'll do the rest of it. He's not like that. He loves us. He longs to connect with us. But he knows that unless we persevere, we won't value that relationship with him very much. And we won't have the courage that we need to make it through the time of trouble. If every time I go to God and I say, God, I want you to bless me, give me happiness and peace. And he floods me with peace instantly. I feel great about myself. I feel great about everything in life. And I go out, whew, I feel wonderful. Life is good. Now, how am I going to witness to someone else who's hurting? And they come to me crying, saying, I'm really battling. I don't know how to keep going. I say, you know what you need to do? You just need to go pray, and God will help you feel wonderful, just like he's done for me. How much is that going to help somebody else who's hurting? who's needing God to help them work through something painful in their life. That emotional healing that takes time is going to be short-circuited if they just slap on a Band-Aid and take a Tylenol. Okay, yeah, I prayed too, and now I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I've forgotten about all the things that my parents did to me. And then they'll blow up at little things that really are insignificant because their reaction is totally not proportionate to the actual situation. It's related to what's going on in their past, the resentment, the sinful patterns of relating that they've held on to. God wants to get to the root of those. He wants to go down into that minefield and say, let's dig up the mines together. Let's make this green grassy field a beautiful, safe place instead of a place that just appears safe. Then, instead of our marriages and our relationships with our children and other people in our lives being a minefield where I don't know why I blew up at my son for what he did, but I did and he deserved it, I'm sure, somehow. Instead of justifying myself, I'll be able to realize I sinned. I just sinned against him, and I'm going to find out what's at the root of that so that God can set me free. He can pull that root out and transform me from the inside out so I don't have to continue relating in sinful ways just because I've always done it that way, and that's the way we did it in our family. No, God says, I'm going to make you a new creature. Not instantaneously, everything you do in life will be perfect now, 
First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear, right? We're always either growing or dying. Isn't that what you see in plants? Every plant out there, it's either growing or it's dying. Every human being is created to grow infinitely throughout eternity into the image of Christ more and more. So God wants us to keep growing. Don't get discouraged when you see that you're, you have a lot of things to work on. Just let God work on them one by one, moment by moment, because he loves to change us. That's his power. That's the glory of the gospel, that he's changing us into his image moment by moment as we surrender. And then he'll tap us on the shoulder and say, have you noticed this one? <gasps> no, I had no idea that I was doing that. One of my friends told me that she had, she, you know, she had some struggles that she'd been going through, so we did some deep counseling. I really talked with her. She agonized with me. And the Lord set her free in some powerful ways. But I said to her afterward, you know, the Lord's going to keep on revealing to you ways that you'll, you'll be surprised at the ramifications, as you see, once this root is out, Areas of your life you didn't realize were being affected by this sin issue are going to start evaporating. She said, oh, well, that's interesting. Okay. A couple of weeks later, she called me and said, you won't believe it. Guess what happened? I was talking to one of my friends on the phone, and then they got another call coming in. They said, you know what? I got somebody else calling me. I got to go. And she said, before, whenever anybody had done that with me, right away I felt angry. I felt slighted. I felt like, why are they doing that to me? You know, I'm obviously not as valuable to them as someone else. She said this time when, the, when she said that, it didn't bother me a bit. You see, the root sin was gone. She was no longer basing her sense of worth on what other people thought of her. So now she wasn't hurt by the fact that somebody needed to talk to someone else instead of her. It was okay. Her self-worth was based on the love that God had for her, not on the fact that her friends thought that she was more important than anyone else. You see what I'm getting at? When we let God dig out the deep-rooted issues that are going on in our lives, the fruit sins start shriveling up and falling off. We're like, wow, that's great. I thought I was going to have to pick apples off this tree all my life, and now the whole tree's gone. It's wonderful. You see, God loves to dig things out of our lives because this is the way he is. He loves to get rid of ugliness and bring beauty instead. Beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. In Jeremiah 2, we touched on this before, Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. If you want to trace what sin issues are going on in your life, use this verse as a guide, because out of these two evils spring every other evil. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That's your number one sin and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's your number two sin. All the sins that you can find in this world to commit come out of one of those two roots. Either you are forsaking the Lord as the center of your life, or you're hewing out a broken cistern that can hold no water. This verse in Jeremiah 2.13, it's, it's so compact, so simple, and yet so unbelievably complex. These two sins, they're a cycle. If you think about this, when, when you're thirsty, you want to find something to satisfy your thirst, right? You go to a, a, a broken cistern if you can't find the water of life. Many people, they go to broken cisterns all the time. This couple that I, I talked with, they found in one another what they couldn't find in God. 
not because God wasn't there, not because God didn't want to give it to them, but because they wanted a God with skin on. They wanted somebody who was right there who could make them feel better fast. They didn't want to have to go through this process of agonizing and giving things to God and surrendering. That just doesn't sound fun. That sounds messy, doesn't it? They wanted somebody quick who could make them feel good. In half an hour, they could feel great if everything went okay between them, right? But of course, the idols always crumble. And so anytime you have an idolatrous relationship, anything that's on the throne of your heart instead of Christ, and it's always self, just in some manifestation, a relationship or an, an addiction, whatever it is, anytime there's something on the throne of the heart instead of, self, instead of Christ, that thing will become a compulsive need. I need you to love me. I need you to accept me just the way I am. I need you to prove to me that I am enough for you. You don't want any relationship with anyone else. I need, I need, I need. People who are consumed with broken cisterns are consumed with the broken cisterns because they're rightfully very thirsty. There's nothing wrong with being thirsty. God put enmity between us and the serpent. So any time that Christ is not on the throne of my heart, I'm going to be thirsty. It's a guarantee. The thirst is not a sin. If you're crawling through that desert and the oasis is way off in the distance, you go, man, I can't make it that far. And often, the sins that our parents have committed or the, the things that have held us back, maybe it's our own sins. The, we've been fleeing to broken cisterns for lo so long that the oasis just seems to recede off into the distance the longer we choose to sin instead of going to Christ. That distance between us and the oasis makes us think there's no way I can get to God and get him to satisfy my needs. I know he's there. I know he loves me. I know the water of life is right over there, but it's too far away. Let me get something really quick here that'll satisfy me. And so we go to the broken cistern instead. The broken cistern seems like it'll satisfy us. We dig a little hole right here. Okay, I can find some water. And we get down there through the sand. Sure enough, there's some water. We can drink a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of salty, yeah, it's kind of yucky, not the best, it's not perfect water, but I was so thirsty and I really needed something to drink. But now I've got two wells, don't I? Do I want to head for that water of life? Because every time I have to head for that water of life, I've got to leave this broken cistern, right? And this is the place I got water. You don't understand how thirsty I am. And I never get enough. If it's a broken cistern, there's never enough to satisfy. It'll make you feel good for a little while. You get a few steps away from, all right, I think I can make it to the fountain of living water now. But wow, I think I just need one more little drink from that broken cistern. Then I can make it. Until eventually the broken cistern dries up. And we say, all right, I've got to dig another one. I need something. I'm so thirsty. And the longer we wait there, the thirstier we are. The more it seems like I can't possibly get to the fountain of living water. Do you see the cycle? You see in this? So the more I go to the broken cistern, the less I think I can make it to the water of life. And the less that I get the water of life, the more I need the broken cistern. And as I become thirstier and thirstier, I become more and more consumed with the broken cistern. You, when you hear on the news, some woman's been beaten to death by her boyfriend. It, you know, that used to always shock me. I'm like, why is he her boyfriend? Boyfriend is supposed to be somebody that you love, somebody who loves you. Why do they stay with these jerks who are just going to wreck their lives? But you see, it's the broken cistern principle. He's not really satisfying her, but it's a whole lot better than loneliness. 
because God is not the center of her life. She needs him. She needs him desperately. And maybe she just needs the feeling of, I think I can make him into everything he needs to be. If only I can fix him, I'll be the solution to his problems. I'll be the one who shows him what love really is. Oh, go listen to those love songs again. You were the one who showed me what love really was. And I think, give it two years. You know what's going to happen to the marriage built on you were the one who showed me what love really was? You're never going to be enough. That's what. Because God is the fountain of living water. And the broken cisterns always dry up. The idols always crumble, remember? God has to make it that way because otherwise we'll never come to the fountain of living water. He's not mean. He loves us. He makes it dry up because he wants us to come to him for the water that will make us never thirst again. That's a real truth. It's a reality. People say to me, but can it really happen? Yes, but it can only happen when you stop going to the broken cisterns. So when you go to the broken cistern and it dries up, do you find another broken cistern? You say, okay, I've just got to dig something. Let me crawl toward the fountain of life, but I've got to find something else. I'm so, so thirsty. I can't go that far. God is so merciful. He brings us the water from the fountain of life. He comes to us out there in the desert where we're crawling, where we're desperate. And that's why many of you are here at the seminar. You're here because God has sent you. He said to you, keep seeking me. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. You can't give it a half-hearted thing. You can't come to God and demand, make me happy in two weeks or I'm out of here. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Even if he made you happy, you would be still fundamentally self-centered, and therefore your happiness can't last. Any happiness that happens when self is on the throne of your heart will be temporary, it will not last, it will not satisfy that thirst, because only a deep drink from the fountain of living water will help. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the sins that we tend to plunge into, the the sins that often realize, you know, they are something that comes from someone else's sins against us often, but when we're adults, they're our responsibility. It's me that has to choose to let God sever the puppet strings that make me a prisoner of my past. Most men who have been damaged in childhood do not develop an addiction to relationships. They usually try to protect themselves and avoid their pain through pursuits which are more external than internal, more impersonal than personal. Their tendency is to become obsessed with work, sports, or hobbies. Probably most of you have observed this in men's lives. It's, it's not a rule across the board. There are some men who become obsessive about relationships. Not everyone. <clears throat> and by the way, that book, Women Who Love Too Much, um, that was in the introduction, page 15, but um, that's a misnomer. No one loves too much. Women who love too much, this is talking about women who love themselves. And therefore, self is on the throne of the heart, and they think, wow, if I can just get someone to give me the love I want, then I'll be happy. Therefore, they're willing to give everything, their mind, soul, body, to this man, if only he'll make them feel loved. Surprisingly, he never fully satisfies, but it's better than nothing, right? When you can't get to the river of life, you can at least try to lap up something out of this broken cistern. It never works, but somehow every generation has to discover that for themselves. The woman's tendency is to become obsessed with a relationship, perhaps with just such a damaged and distant man. That's from, also from the same source. The God of obsessive relationship. What is that? 
What drives people to obsessive relationships? Surely you've known somebody like this. I remember talking to a girl who uh, was, I, I met her as I was working in an office, and she told me she was engaged. Oh, she was so excited. She was going to get married soon. And then she says to me, yeah, he does have a real problem with, with drinking, but that'll all change after we get married. I don't know where she is now, but I'll guarantee one thing. It didn't change unless he allowed Christ to become the center of his life. And what are the chances of that? When a person gets into a marriage with this mindset, when she no longer satisfies him and alcohol no longer satisfies him, who's he going to blame? It's her fault. If only she would do things right, then he could be happy, right? When we are in a relationship with a significant other, especially in marriage, this is what makes marriages crumble very often because we now see my goal is happiness. And what stands between me and happiness? Why you, of course. If you would just do what I wanted, then I could be happy. So we try to control, we try to manipulate, we try to get that person to do what we want because then I could be happy. How does that change when your goal is holiness? Now, all of a sudden, no matter what this person does to you, they can still help you to be changed into the image of Christ. That doesn't mean you should get into a marriage with a person and say, it doesn't matter, as long as my goal is holiness, we can have a happy marriage. I can't even begin to express to you the pain that I see from people who have married foolishly. Don't think that you can marry whoever you want and as long as your goal is holiness, it'll all turn out great. If your goal is holiness, then God is the one who's going to decide who you're going to marry, right? I don't mean that he takes over and just tells you what to do, writes it in the sky. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible that God says, here is the one I have chosen for you. But God has laid out principles very plainly in how to choose a spouse. Be ye not unequally yoked together. And you may be unequally yoked together with someone else who is of the same faith that you are, still be unequally yoked. There are so many ways to be unequally yoked, and God wants to lead us through that process. But if your goal is happiness instead of holiness, you'll say, it's okay, God, I think I got it under control. I can take care of this one. I'll find somebody who will make me happy, and then my goal will be to be holy. I had a Bible study contact who had that perspective. She wanted to get baptized, but she wanted to wait until she worked things out with her boyfriend and got married to him, because then she felt like, you know, then I can get baptized, but if I get baptized, and then I want to marry him and he's an unbeliever, well, then I'm going to get disfellowshipped. I wouldn't want that to happen. But if I'm already married to him when I get baptized, then, hey, it's too late. I can get baptized even if I'm married to somebody who's not a believer. Big trouble. You don't want to mess with saying, God, I know you've got a plan, but I think I've got a better one than yours, actually. Self-reliance, the sin of the age. The person who manages to deny his pain behind a facade of togetherness is dangerously vulnerable to developing compulsively sinful habits because he's not dealing a death blow to the wrong strategies that block his enjoyment of the Lord. The unrecognized and largely unfelt ache in his soul still demands relief. He's ripe for being hooked. That's from the book Inside Out, page 101. This is something I've seen so many times, you know. A person who seems to have things together on the outside, they're doing great. They're leading out in ministry. They're having time with God every day. They go to church regularly. All of a sudden, something comes along and boom, they're hooked by a relationship or an addiction, something that they've, they never thought that they would do. But suddenly, they're consumed by it. Why? Yes. 
Sure, I will leave that quotation up for a second. What is it that leads a person to be instantly addicted? You know, there's so many people that watch, say, violent movies. And they finish the movie, they shut it off, they go to bed, that's the end of it. They can watch more of them later on if they feel like it or not if they don't. Pornographic movies, sometimes it's that way too, or people who read novels, or people who are, eat junk food, you know? Some people, they can eat junk food, you know, okay, once in a while, it's fine. Then they don't have to, they're not compulsive about it, you see? But there are other people that they become compulsive just once and they're hooked. You know, there are people who become alcoholics just once and they're hooked. I'm not saying that there isn't a biological factor sometimes involved there, but often the main thing that's happening is they lied to themselves. They just plain were not willing to come to grips with how much pain was going on in their lives. And so they swallow it. Push it back, I'm not going to think about this. I've counseled with many homosexuals, and this was what was going on in their lives. At a very early age, you can make the decision to lie to yourself, to say, I'm not going to feel that. And then later on, you know, I, I remember I talked to a woman who told me, she was just, you know, I met her at a potluck, and she said, yeah, my son is homosexual. And I said, you know, ma'am, I've never met your son, I don't know a thing about him, but let me tell you what my research has shown me in dealing with homosexuality. Many homosexuals, maybe most, I'm not going to say all, but many of them have developed, you know, they, they grow up with a bad relationship with their same-sex parent. They have a craving for love from that same-sex parent, but they push it away. They develop an anger and a resentment, a bitterness that's just overwhelming to them. And then they're incapable of, of dealing with that level of pain. Often they're highly melancholy personalities, so they feel pain intensely. Where a more choleric personality, their sinful way of hand handling anger is to blow up, scream at you, curse at you, tell you all the things they hate about you. Where a more melancholy personality, they don't want to do that. They don't want to hurt the person who hurt them that way. And so they bury it. I'm not going to feel that. I'm not going to express that. And it, it boils inside. Sin that's buried is still sin. And it develops into resentment. And then they have that classic... Um, behavior of people who have buried sin, they blow up reactions, sinful reactions that are totally not proportionate to the actual situation that they're in. Boom, they blow up about something. And then they're back to everything's fine. No, no, no. I'm doing great. Nothing's wrong in my life. Praise the Lord. God is good. Sorry about that little blow up there. <laughs> everything's fine. Yeah, everything's good. And the, a person sometimes develops that craving for same-sex love. A God-given craving. God designed for parents and children to have deep, intimate relationships. He designed for children to love their parents and parents to love their children. And when a child has that craving for same-sex love from their parent, there's nothing evil about it. But when the parent hasn't given that to them and the child resents it in certain personalities, in certain situations, instead of that coming up as, I hate my father, I don't want anything to do with him, it turns around and becomes this Warped, I need intimacy. And our culture tells you if you want intimacy, get sex. That's the most intimate thing out there. So some people, that's how it turns out. Sometimes there's sexual abuse mixed in there, and that's what turns their, their craving for same-sex intimacy, physical and sexual. So I told this lady, you know, this is, this is my experience. Often it's a highly melancholy personality, 
a person who's been deeply hurt by their same-sex parent, they haven't felt the love of their same-sex parent, even if that same-sex parent has given them great love, but they haven't felt loved, then, and that anger and resentment and pain that they've dealt with develops into a craving for intimacy. And she said, wow, that's a perfect description of my son. That's exactly what he's like. He's a very melancholy. He's always been the thoughtful one, the sensitive one. And my husband left us when the boys were just young. The other boys have done fine. They've, they've moved on. But this son, he's so enraged, he won't even talk about his father. And yet, he's developed this homosexual um, orientation now. You know, homosexuality is a comp complex thing to deal with. I wouldn't pretend that there's an easy solution. But I've seen homosexuals be transformed by the power of God. I've seen them turned into heterosexuals or turned into people who are able to be celibate and rejoicing in the Lord, feeling free and whole and happy. You know, not everybody is called to sexual intimacy, and that's okay. When you're single, you can't live in free sexuality. Great. Does that mean that you are living a horrible, empty, forsaken life? The world tells us you've got to be able to have sex and all the sex that you want or else you'll never be happy. And like it or not, many people believe that. But that is not the necessity. Often, though, the fruit sins, the things that we do, compulsive sexual behaviors, are really a result of root sins. Resentment, bitterness, anger, smoldering feelings that are not being dealt with because we're not willing to let God into that wounded area of our hearts. Say, here, cut here, wound me so that you may be able to heal me. We who love obsessively are full of fear, fear of being alone, fear of being unlovable and unworthy, fear of being ignored or abandoned or destroyed. What would you say is the solution to that kind of fear? Is it, I'm not going to be afraid anymore, I'm going to conquer my fears? You know, that, there's some merit to that. I remember when I was afraid of horses, and I went over to my friend's house and I said, can I ride your horse for a little while? I got on their horse and I... I rode it as fast as I could all the way across their pasture. Then I stopped it at the other end, I turned it around, and I rode back. I did that a few times. My legs were jello. And by the time I got off the horse, I had conquered my fear of horses. You can conquer some fears by dealing with them openly, but I couldn't deal with the problem of fear, the problem that I wanted to be in control of my life. So I wasn't afraid of horses anymore, but my fear was coming out in other ways in my life. Because I wanted to be in control of my life, I wasn't willing to trust God. So if you continue with that, we give our love in the desperate hope that the man with whom we're obsessed will take care of our fears. That's also from women who love too much. Have you ever given your love in the desperate hope that someone would love you back? That's not the way that satisfying relationships develop. We can't give our love to God in the hope that he will love us back. Many people try, but they're never confident of that love. I talked with a friend who said, you know, my father is so manipulative. He spends all his time trying to get us to love him. Or he'll, he'll drop little remarks about how, you know, well, no one around here really appreciates anything I do. But no matter how much they assure him, yes, we do, of course we appreciate you, of course we love you. Does he ever believe that? Do you think he ever will? When you manipulate someone into saying something, do you ever truly feel loved? 
The only way you can truly experience that love is if you let go. You let people choose whether or not they're going to love you. And we who are insecure feel the need to force people to love us. Then we'll be able to be happy and whole and free and healed. If I can just get somebody to love me, and if they don't seem to get the message, if they don't see how much they need to love me, I'll help them love me. I'll let them know, I really need you to love me, by the way. You know, I've sometimes said to my husband, okay, I need you to tell me that I'm beautiful and you love me. He'll say, oh. You're beautiful, and I love you. Thank you, honey. <laughs> Do you think that's going to solve anything? <laughs> no, no. Only by love is love awakened. If he feels that he has to force that out, you know, if he can't truthfully say to me that he loves me and that he thinks I'm beautiful, we're both in trouble, right? Pride is thinking we can handle things without God. When we aren't satisfied by the deep love of God, we're always going to be trying to get other people to satisfy that need that we have. There are so many broken cisterns that you can go to. Entertainment, food, sex, competition, control, virtuosity, self-protection, idolatrous relationships. I've known people who had every one of these idols, some of them several, because often idols go in clusters. You know, you got to go to this broken cistern for a little while, but that one doesn't fully satisfy you, so you go to this one too. You know, get a combination of several potent drugs, and then the pain won't hurt anymore, right? As you examine your own life, identify the broken cisterns. Find the things that you're going to. When you feel down, what do you flee to? Do you pick up your cell phone or do you pick up the word of God? Do you go to God in prayer or do you go find your boyfriend or girlfriend and talk to them? Do you find a pizza or do you find some communion with God? God is the one who's going to solve these problems. So you need to prayerfully evaluate. Where do you turn when you feel down? What does that idol bring to you? What does it satisfy? Does it make you feel loved? Does it make you feel worth something? And don't think that good things can't be idols. Ministry is a powerful idol. I feel so good when I give somebody a Bible study. Great. But is that a connection with God? Are you feeling his love for you or feeling, all right, I've done something else. Now surely he'll love me. These things will never satisfy. And ultimately, people experience burnout when they do ministry for those reasons. They're unable to say no because there's never enough affirmation to make you feel like you've gotten what you needed to do. Look for the root sin. Is this, is this a sin that's coming from you forsaking the fountain of living water? Or is it hewing out a broken cistern for yourself, something that can hold no water? Is it that you're not spending enough time with God? You're not letting him come into the deep places, that sponge of your heart that's thirsty? Rely on God's ability to satisfy the thirst of your heart. He may not do it overnight. Sometimes he wants you to persevere. If you work out with those five-pound weights for 10 minutes, it's not going to do a whole lot for you. What about if you work out with those 50-pound weights for 10 minutes? Sometimes God wants to tax us to our limit of perseverance in our relationship with him, but he'll never require more than we can do. Anytime he allows us to have to persevere and suffer, it's not because he's pulling away and saying, can you come this far? Can you come this far? It's because he wants to bring us farther toward him. He wants to teach us, to lead us, to bring us to be who he wants us to be. You know, I remember talking with a girl who was a Bible worker. She had been working for God for many years. She was a very successful Bible worker 
On the outside, she just looked like she was rejoicing in the Lord. God was doing so many great things in her life. She'd been through one of those programs that helps you to become all you need to be, you know, spiritually and evangelistically. She was so excited for God, it seemed. But she called me broken, sobbing. She said, I'm just at the end of my rope. I don't know how to go on. And then she told me she was addicted to pornography and masturbation. And I was a little shocked, you know, this was not somebody that I would have expected. She seemed so together. So I probed a little deeper. I said, all right, what's going on? What happened in your life? What are these things rooted in? And we discovered a history of sexual abuse. But she felt it was her fault. She felt she was bad. And now she said, I don't even, I don't even like these things. I don't even get pleasure from the porn. But I'm going to the same things that reflect what happened to me. And I said, could it be that you feel, that's who I am. I'm a bad girl. And she started crying all her heart out. She just said, yes, that's, that's me. That's who I am. And I shared with her how God wants to set us free. I shared with her that she doesn't have to measure up to who God wants her to be. It's not up to her to finally become everything that God wants her to be, and then he can accept her. You know, so often the devil tells us those lies. He's, it's lies. He says, all you need to do is measure up to all of these things. Then I can fill you with my spirit. I can make you into my instrument. And we try and we try and we try. And she, she said, you know, I'll pray. I'll kneel down and agonize before God when I fall. I say, please forgive me for this. But I helped her understand. These are the fruit sins. You... You pray, you kneel down, you agonize before God about the fruit sins, and you stand up and you still feel guilty because the root sin is still there. The root sin is that you don't believe that the blood of Christ is enough to cleanse you from sin. You think you need to supplement that blood with your own sacrifice. You need to do something so that he can love you. In a course of a two-hour conversation, she was able to surrender that to the Lord, and the chains were broken. She was no longer addicted to those things. It just happened. Now, I can't promise you that every addiction is going to go away like that, but it was amazing. She just couldn't believe it. She started writing to me every week or so. She just I can't believe it. I just feel like I'm floating. I can't tell you the, the wonderful joy that I have in finding truly being set free by the power of God. It was wonderful. I can't tell you exactly how God is going to lead you in breaking you free from the chains that bind you. Some people... God sets them free from being addicted to smoking by just bang, it's gone. They wake up one morning, they can't still smell the, stand the smell of smoke. Other people, they battle with it every day for the rest of their lives, moment by moment, finding victory through Christ. I don't know what your struggle is or what it is that's holding you back, but I know this. God is not going to allow you to be tempted above what you are able. If there is a temptation, if there is something that's plaguing you, something that you can't seem to get rid of, I encourage you to bring it to the Lord. Tell him, this is what's bothering me. Help me figure out what's at the root of it. Find those things that are holding you back. Give them to the Lord. Ask him to deal with the deep-rooted issues and start building your worth on the two things that he has said to you. You are created in my image and I am recreating you in my image. He sees that potential in you. Creation and redemption, the two themes that are throughout the Bible. He made you in his image. You fell by choice. He says, that's okay. I can still make my image in you. 
It doesn't matter what you have messed up in, what someone else has messed up for you. God can use those things to turn you into what he wants you to be. And it's better than anything that you can imagine on your own. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we can't begin to understand the love that you have for us, that when we have rebelled against you openly, we have chosen not to love you, you've poured yourself out for us out of love. I just pray that you will help each person who is listening to my voice to seek you with all their hearts, to come out victorious, more than conquerors, through your love for them. Thank you so much, Lord, that you do see that potential in every one of us, and you love us that much. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.